Emerald podcast series. Research that makes a difference. Welcome to the Emerald podcast series. In this series, we speak to experts from around the globe using research to create real impact. In each episode, we explore the role of research within the context of the environmental, economic, social and political challenges facing our society and look at the ways in which research, policy and practice interact to affect communities around the world. We're your hosts. I'm Daniel Ridge. I'm Helen Bedo, and we are publishers at Emerald Publishing. This week, I'm speaking to Johnny D. Jones, founder and CEO of the Delta Project and professor of education at Mississippi Valley State University. Johnny is a democratic education activist and has worked in higher education for over 20 years working at both historically black colleges and universities, or HBCUs, and predominantly white institutions, sometimes known as PWIs. He's the author of Leadership of Historically Black Colleges and Universities, a what not to do guide for HBCU leaders. We're here today to talk about HBCUs, their place in higher education, and effective leadership. Welcome to the podcast, Johnny. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome. Thank you for having me. So can you start by telling me a little bit about the history of HBCUs? What is their place in the U.S. higher education system? The history of HBCUs has been around in the United States for a very long time. They were formed to help educate the citizens of this country, of the United States, but particularly they educate former slaves, American Negro students, to make sure they can attend an institution of higher learning that they were not welcome to attend other institutions of higher learning in the United States at that time. So HBCUs have played a very, very vital part of the educational foundation of this country, um, educating citizens to become leaders in their profession. Most, most of the HBCUs were grounded in education, also just creating a strong atmosphere for students to matriculate from, to go to a college or university that has a culture that's similar to where they are from, a culture that they can really, you know, be part of to help educate themselves, educate their community, but most importantly, to be part of the fabric of continuing to build this nation. With over 100 HBCUs in the United States that have students from all countries from around the world, have different academic program and different academic niches at each HBCU. That what makes them very, very unique. So HBCUs will continue, should continue to be a driving force of educating citizens in this country and throughout the world, but most importantly, maintaining their historical niche as well as their culture and what their mission and visions were when they were established. And what have been some of the biggest challenges facing HBCUs in recent years? Well, in my opinion, though, someone who has who went to an HBCU at, at the undergraduate level and at the graduate level, who has worked with multiple HBCUs around the country in a variety of different capacities, so have really, really, really been part of the HBCU landscape throughout my entire professional career, entire prof- higher education professional career over the last twenty plus years. With that being said, a lot of the challenges that have been facing HBCUs in the recent years are always tied to accreditation, funding, external funding, unique academic programs, external resources, and most importantly, poor leadership. So I feel that, you know, for HBCUs, particularly during these trying times to turn their institutions around or to 
address some of the challenges that are facing the institution, they really need to look at um, the leadership of those institutions, making sure that those leaders are able to address some of those major issues of accreditation, funding, unique academic program, external resources, and understanding what type of leader should be selected. And are these particularly unique leadership challenges for HBCU schools? Yes, they are unique um, challenges. Um, We have a lot of leaders at HBCUs who are just not ready to serve Mm -hmm. in those leadership capacities. One of my colleagues who has worked at HBCUs over 40 plus years, he makes the statement all the time, Dr. Darnell Williams, he makes the statement all the time that to work at an HBCU, knowing that there are challenges particularly tied to funding and accreditation, you know, it's your opportunity to serve. I have seen too many times many HBCUs fail because the leaders are self-serving. They care more about their title than their opportunity to, to serve. And that is not the foundation and the mission and vision of HBCUs. HBCUs have always been an institution that is there to serve leaders who have served in these institutions, who have helped these institutions become great institutions. Those leaders serve the students and serve the community and serve the citizenship. They were not self-serving leaders. I really like the subtitle of your book, A What Not To Do Guide. Thank you. Mistakes are powerful learning opportunities. So what are some of the biggest pitfalls and and common mistakes you've seen in HBCU leadership? A lot of the issues I have seen with HBCUs across the country and, and multiple regions of the United States is the fact that it's always tied to funding. Then also HBCUs, they continue to recycle some of the leaders in variety of different areas of academic affairs, student affairs, and also presidents that were not successful at other HBCUs, which can be tied to seasoned leadership or seasoned people want the same people around them so that they will not be held accountable. So accountability is a piece that really hinders HBCUs from being successful, where they hire someone to raise money in institutional development but the person in institutional development cannot even raise the operation costs of their unit. You talk about innovative academic programs. Yes, HBCUs around the country have most, a lot of them have been underfunded, no by the state if they receive monies from the state. But also there's a level of responsibility of the graduates and also of the people who went to the HBCU to give back to the HBCU. And then also just unethical practices by a lot of presidents from um, improper hiring practices, practices in regards to um, mismanagement of funds, criminal issues, you know, a lot of different things that sh- that as a leader, particularly as a president of HBCU, you should be cognizant of because you represent the HBCU and also the citizenship of the students that are coming there to, to try to ascertain the degree at the institution. If you are a leader of an institution, particularly like HBCU or, or any institution of higher learning, regardless regardless of where you're located, anywhere in the world. But if you're taking on a leadership position, let's just say a president or a chancellor, if you take it for granted that people come to this institution, pay their hard-earned money, a lot of them take out loans, they still be paying money because they have to pay the loans back, but they come to this institution and they are entrusting you with their life to say, hey, I am paying for this education, I'm paying for this experience. If you take that for granted, or you really do not provide a high quality level of education and operations and also educational experience to that person, I feel that's criminal. And these problems around leadership, I mean, in your book, you mention seasoned administrators and, and seasoned friends. Uh, what do you mean by these 
Yes. Um, seasoned administrators, what happened is that what I have witnessed is that a lot of HBCU leaders, they consider themselves seasoned when you become, when you have been in, in higher learning for over 20, let's just say 20 plus years. I can say that I am a seasoned administrator, but the difference with being a seasoned administrator is that a lot of these leaders have only experienced leadership at HBCU. Some of them have experienced leadership only at one HBCU. And there's a difference between being experienced and having multiple experiences. Yes, there are some administrators out there who have multiple experiences and that can maintain a level of excitement, a level of excellence, right leadership to move to HBCU for. But also there's a lot of administrators out there who proclaim themselves as seasoned administrators who continue to do the same things that are hindering HBCUs and cannot move to HBCU forwards. If they are real leaders or real administrators, they will help create the next wave of new administrators to come in to pass down that knowledge to continue to push the HBCU forward because it's, it's about the institution. It's not about them. And what does good leadership look like? We have some HBCUs, some presidents that are doing some phenomenal things, you know, at their university that can be seen as a model for future HBCU presidents or future leaders of HBCUs as well, such as Ruth Simmons at Prairie View A&M University, phenomenal, outstanding, very smart, intelligent. I consider her leadership as a model for future HBCU leaders. Michael Sorrell at Paul Quinn College in Texas, you know, Beverly Tatum did an excellent, excellent job at Spelman University and also at other institutions of higher learning as a leader. Then also we have um, Quentin Ross down at Alabama State University. They are doing some great things that he's doing some great things with his leadership at Alabama State University. So there are other HBCU leaders across the country that we can utilize as a blueprint of success, you know, who have worked at different leadership capacities in and out of higher education or or multiple institutions of higher learning. But most importantly, they put their institutions first and they lead by example. Something I've noticed in in UK institutions, one of the the issues that I see is that as people kind of move up to leadership positions, they've not really received the training. They, they've kind of not really received like the project management training or the leadership development. You know, they're kind of appointed on their academic ability or their ability, you know, to bring in funding. And in HBCUs, is, is that missing as well? That like project management training piece, that leadership development training piece? It is. You have a lot of HBCU leaders who their training comes from their academic program or they may have experiences at other HBCUs, but but you really don't have that project management or business mindset training. You have a lot of different leadership training programs around the country, you know, or things you can do online, international training program. But it goes back to your the person's track record, mm. a level of success. When you have presidents take on position at HBCUs and say that they are enrollment management experts. However, their track records show that they are not enrollment management experts. They really can't articulate, you know, how they increase enrollment at the uh, other institution. Um, how does enrollment management compare to other institutions of higher learning? They don't utilize data. Enrollment management is a science. Same thing as student affairs and academic affairs. What did you do? at your previous institution that uh, really enhanced the academic enterprise of that institution, but most importantly, put that institution in a position where they can be a competitive institution in its global marketplace. We deal with 
COVID-19 and we are becoming a more global society through technology, people have a choice. And HBCUs are very important in terms of the culture, in terms of in the midst of all these different things um, going on with Black Lives Matter. But students still have a choice to receive a proper education. Students will enroll at HBCUs, but most importantly, they will leave them as fast as possible. And you're going to create this cycle of struggling HBCUs because they're not operating at their highest level capacity in this competitive global education marketplace. And then you got to look at the leader. Does HBCU has the right leader in place? So, I mean, it seems really important then to be able to bring in fresh eyes to leadership positions. You know, where should these institutions be looking at to hire? Who should they be looking to bring in into leadership? A lot of the HBCUs, they really need to figure out what type of leader they want first. Bowman and Deal's frame theory to decide what type of leader is best fit for their institution. Structural, symbolic, human resource, political type leader. What's best for that institution? And it takes doing the research and slowing things down. I believe a lot of HBCU leaders, a lot of HBCU, particularly in this trying time, they should use organizations like no different organization that does interim hiring for leadership. Instead of bringing someone in, you spend six to eight months, particularly when your institution is unstable, going through a process and hoping that you got the right person, then come to find out you don't have the right person. But if you if you reach out to organizations such as the registry and they are an organization that hired you no know, work with HBCU, work with institutions around the country to hire people on an interim basis so that the board or whatever the governing body wants from that leader in an interim time to make sure the HBCU is back on track. Then not only you save financial resources, but you have a strategic plan of getting of going where you want to go based on the institution needs. I feel also the HBCUs need to work with different there are other different leadership programs out there and look at how can you train a leader that's going to be tailored to the HBCU because they are very unique. I think HBCU should take more of a business model um, in terms of holding leaders accountable. You know, yes, they have contracts, but most importantly, there should be certain things they need to accomplish to enhance the HBCU. So the leadership, the training starts with the institution expectations. People can go to leadership training around the country. They can enter enroll in different doctorate programs around the country. However, what, what are the expectations of the HBCU? If the HBCU has high expectations, then only people you will attract to come lead in those different positions are people who agree with those expectations and also know they have the capability of fulfilling those expectations. It sounds like also, you know, as well as strong leadership, you need a strong strategy and you need uh, to understand, I guess, the core value and the core character of the institution. Exactly. So how can leaders kind of keep these core values in mind while creating a strategic plan for the institution? You know, what kind of mission and clear vision? Well, you know, and that, and that starts with working with a clear shared governance structure at the institution, working with the students, staff, faculty, board, community stakeholders, understanding what those core values are from the beginning. We have a lot of HBCUs that go into institutions um, and can't write a strategic plan, can't put a strategic plan together. They come in those institutions and the first thing they will say, well, how are things done prior to now. We're just going to keep moving this forward. I have seen HBCU leaders, they take a strategic plan that has no substance, mm. that that's not measurable, but they just change the name, add a tagline to it and move on, say this strategic plan. But when you look at the strategic plan and you measure the strategic plan, then you will see that nothing was accomplished. 
I mean, understanding the core value of the HBCU and, and accomplishing the things that need to be accomplished. The accountability also plays on the students, faculty, staff, and internal and external stakeholders. They need to be held accountable. A lot of HBCUs are very, very spiritually grounded. Educating former slaves, you know, a lot of HBCUs are tied to different um, religious affiliations. So they are very spiritually grounded. And just because you hear some people um, have a, a strong, what I call spiritual rhetoric, that they talk from a spirituality point of view, but they don't live the things that they are discussing from a spirituality point of view, then, you know, you can't be fooled by someone who really doesn't have the institution best interest at heart. That also kind of links back to this project management piece, you know, not having that kind of wider project management business mindset around accountability, how to develop a strategic plan how to put it in action and how to check that you're delivering on on the things that you've promised to deliver. Exactly. And that's where that's where I feel that HBCUs are all a lot of institutions are high learned. They are they are shifting to more project management. More project management in terms of leading institutions of higher learning. You know, the traditional route used to be at HBCU or any institution of higher learning was you're a faculty member, you know, you want to go to administrator route, you may become a chair. From a chair, you go become a dean, from a dean to a provost, and then you're the president. Because through all those different steps, you should have been able to ascertain some level of project management, understanding budgeting, understanding accountability, numbers, resources, all the different things that should make you a successful institution. But most importantly, understand how to initiate planning and execution in terms of performance monitoring for the project you're trying to accomplish at the HBCU. HBCUs need to think about how can we be more innovative? How can we look at a project management style leader to make sure we hold that person accountable to accomplish what we want to accomplish? If we're trying to increase enrollment, how are we going to initiate it? What's the plan? How it's going to be executed? And how it's going to be measured? Mm. And then who's responsible for that? If you're the president, you are responsible. If you hire someone to be over enrollment management, if they they fail, then did you make sure they have all the necessary tools in place for them to succeed? So again, it's a level of accountability across the board and having that project management, more business mindset. I mean, perhaps the biggest responsibility HBCU leadership has is, is to their student body. Are there additional challenges in supporting HBCU student bodies and, and how can HBCU strategy deliver here for students? Well, you know, HBCUs, their primary focus should be their student body because 90, I'm going to say, I'm going to throw a figure out there, but I think I'm very, very close to being right. 96% of HBCUs are enrollment-driven institutions. So if you are an enrollment-driven institution, and then it's your responsibility to make sure that these students maximize their learning experience and also they are able to ascertain a degree where they can go out and get a job. With that degree they have worked hard for that will allow them to successfully take care of themselves and also pay back any expenses they will owe trying to complete their degree at their institution. If it's money owed to the institution or if it's money owed to student loans or if it's money owed to private loans or from family members, they need to understand how to best maximize the student's success is through dynamic resource planning, accurate budgeting, forecasting. Interactive resource and scheduling, you know, thinking outside the box in terms of cross-team collaboration and also, you know, just things that can help the student be successful at all times through student success. But again, it starts back with leadership. And I think in your book, you kind of focus in on a particular type of event that 
HBCUs can take a more business-minded approach to, which is the sporting events. I know sporting events, especially the football games, are a major part of HBCUs kind of culture and a key event in the calendar. Tell us a bit about this history of sporting events at HBCUs and how these sporting events are key in helping the schools connect to their local communities. The sporting events at HBCUs are huge due to the fact that a lot of HBCUs, if they have a football team, they have what you call homecoming. Homecoming is the largest football event each year and also different football classes, such as Tennessee State versus Jackson State and Memphis, Jackson State versus Mississippi Valley State, different classes at different places like Chicago, Indianapolis, or, or when HBCUs traveled out west to play a predominant white school, you got HBCU alums that love to see HBCUs. HBCUs are very famous because of their band. The most famous HBCU classic is in the world is the Grambling versus Southern University, the Bayou Classic down in New Orleans. So homecoming in these classes are very, very vital to and very popular to people who graduate from HBCUs and people who did not graduate from HBCUs and also people who want to attend HBCUs. And there are other major sporting events like the CIAA basketball tournament that happens every year. That's a great event. So in these HBCUs, homecoming usually carry a lot of HBCU sports outside of football in terms of revenue generating their homecoming. It's something that needs to be changed at these different HBCUs. That's a good revenue stream for these different colleges and universities. It will help in terms of recruitment and retention of students. But most importantly, you can utilize these resources to enhance academic programs or also put the different athletic teams in a better place to be more competitive to secure other financial resources from other sports teams or from other conferences, such as like this year's Southern University is scheduled to play Louisiana State University in 2025 at, at like a million dollar game. So utilize the resources correctly, invest back into the different academic program. So, uh, Dwayne J. Warmack, president of Claflin University, said recently, when other institutions catch a cold, HBCUs catch a flu. And, well, they're currently facing quite a crisis with COVID-19 at the moment. Have HBCUs been hit harder? Has COVID-19 exacerbated some of the challenges HBCUs have? Well, um, HBCUs have been underfunded for many years. You can see where COVID-19 is really taking a hard hit into the American Black community mm. and that a lot of these students, lack of education of COVID-19 in these different communities where these students come from, these different communities to attend these HBCUs. HBCUs have to do more with less. It's our responsibility at HBCUs to work hard and do what we have done for over a century. Like they say, HBCUs, they make brick out of straw. They turn stones into diamonds. HBCUs are here to continue to serve and be the, and to serve citizenship around the world. However, you know, we have to be more stewards with the resources that we have. We have to cut back and also help build and also got to hold our leadership accountable for managing the resources, as well as um, reach out to different alums to support these HBCUs because they are needed in a lot of different communities where these schools are set up for these students to help these students be successful, make brick without a straw, turn stones into diamonds, and that's why they are needed. So that's what you mean by other institutions catch a cold, the HBCUs catch the flu. <laughs> that's a powerful statement. How can people at the management level, how can people at leadership level be leaders, real leaders during COVID-19? You know, how can they lead an organization working from home online in these different circumstances? 
Well, the first thing they need to do, they need to do a real thorough assessment of where they are as an institution. I think they should definitely look at how to transform their curriculum to fully online delivery. A lot of HBCUs are struggling there because they don't have the technology infrastructure in place and they have not built the technology infrastructure in place because they continue to operate in a very antiquated society and antiquated operation and don't want to change. The faculty need to be trained in virtual teaching. The students need to be trained in virtual learning. Mm. A lot of HBCUs saying we got to go to virtual online teaching, but a lot of these students are not capable or you have not assessed the students to see are these students ready to shift immediately. And then you're talking about a level of student learning assessment and also retention. And look at different mixed modalities of teaching and learning. Don't just wait and see what one school is doing. You need to figure out what can you do to best serve your student at HBCU. And also just looking at how you can change, you know, just the, the academic year. Should it be short residency? Should you go to a more of a quarter system? Should it be a, a more hybrid learning model? You know, you have to know who your students are and what's best for your students. You're going to maintain viability as HBCU in your region. Absolutely. And to talk about the other kind of major event that, that we're seeing at the moment, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement began in, in 2013 and was founded by Alicia Garza, Opal Tometi and Patrice Colors after Trayvon Martin's uh, murderer was acquitted. And it really took hold within and was driven forward in higher education by students within HBCUs. And we did see that, you know, kind of lead to the removal of leadership in some cases and, and see significant changes in policy. Black lives have always mattered at HBCUs. What role have HBCUs played in black activism and in, in social injustice? Oh, Lord. HBCUs have played a vital role throughout their creation in the, what I call the American Negro Civil Rights Movement. And modern, and I was particularly with the modern movement of Black Lives Matter and others. You can look at historical movements um, at Southern University in, in Baton Rouge, Mississippi Valley State University, down the street from where Emmett Till was murdered. Jackson State University um, just celebrated the 50th anniversary of, of students being killed on their campus, being social activists, as well as on the home of Mega Everts, as well as Howard University, Langston University, just to name a few. HBCUs will forever bear witness to the changing political landscape of America, historically built and continue to enhance this country. But most importantly, that HBCUs was also a meeting place for a lot of these different social injustice gatherings. You know, the orange, the, um, a lot of people don't talk about South Carolina State University, the Orangeburg Massacre. You know, these students, that, a lot of these students went to HBCUs and they took a stand to continue to try to better this country. HBCUs played a, lot, a vital role in terms of hosting different meetings. A lot of HBCUs didn't play a vital role because they, they understood where they were. And they want to make sure they maintain the HBCU as an institution, but students stepped up and went against the institution to try to move you know, in the civil rights program, in the civil rights activism forward. So HBCUs have had a responsibility then, and they even more got a responsibility now. And these leaders at these HBCUs got even more of a responsibility. Putting on a T-shirt saying Black Lives Matter is fine, but what are you going to do about it? How are you going to use your academic programs in terms of if you have a bachelor's and a master's degree program in criminal justice? What are you going to, what are your faculty and students and staff are doing to help change the harbor criminal justice system in your state or in your country or in your region? If you have a social work program or a rural or public policy program, what are you doing to work with changing 
policy around inhumane living conditions. Uh, what are you doing? You have an economic program. What are you doing? What are your faculty and staff are doing to help change policy to create more effect economic wage a wage wages in the United States or in your region or in your state? What are you doing if you have a health physical education program and also a biology program? You want to tackle, you know, childhood obesity or health disparities in your state and region. So what are you doing? And see, institutions of higher learning, they are in different places. We're supposed to be the think tank. Professors, people look at, they call you doctor this and doctor that, but what are you doing to help change and make America better? So yeah, HBCUs played a vital role in civil rights, American American Negro civil rights movement. And also they, plan, they can play a vital role in Black Lives Matter movement, but also I think they can do more. They can do more. You can't sit idly by and you have professors and you have academic programs where you're supposed to do research. You're supposed to bring something to the table, but you don't bring anything to the table. You can't sit idly by. And when you see the education of different places in the Mississippi Delta or other different places where they have poor education system, but you have a department of education or you have a college of education and multiple HBCUs in the state and the, and the education landscape is not changing. You're not helping um, change policy. So what are you doing? That goes back to leadership. After the Black Lives Matter movement was was founded in, in around 2013, there was also around the same time an increase uh, in student submissions to HBCUs. And with their renewed attention on the Black Lives Matter protests, particularly in the wake of the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, to name just two people who have been killed by the police, raises an awareness of structural racism and, and driving change at institutions. There's been some suggestions that Black Lives Matter could lead to an increase in support of HBCUs. What are your thoughts on this? Um, yes, it can lead in support of HBCUs. No, it goes back to the roots. Identify the historical context of the HBCUs. You know, um, same thing in early civil rights movement of the 60s and 70s, where the 50s, 60s and 70s, a lot of increased enrollment at HBCUs because the HBCUs played a vital role in these different movements. The HBCUs where you can find a lot of answers and have some real, real heart to heart conversations without feeling being threatened. It's a proud moment for HBCUs to gain new attention. This is why our beloved HBCUs must be on point with their operations and contribution to the academy. You know, this is a time for change and HBCUs must lead that change. However, it starts with changing yourself as an institution. If students are coming to your institution want to enhance their education or wants to enhance their lives, you have a level of responsibility and don't take advantage of those students who are feeling proud. A lot of people are feeling proud and they are saying, hey, I want to go to HBCU now. We see a lot of major athletes are saying, hey, I want to go to HBCU. So they come into HBCU because they feel safer or they, or they want to choose HBCU because of the pride that's going on in the Black Lives Matter movement and other great movements that are out there. So don't take advantage of these students. Make sure these, these students receive the highest level of educational experience as possible that we owe them because they have chosen your institution to make themselves a better citizen. People in leadership at HBCUs really hold a huge responsibility. You are correct. Do you think that they are cognizant enough of that? No, I really don't. I really don't. I, I'm a, it's a lot of great leaders out there. HBCUs are cognizant of it, but it's a lot of them that are not. 
I know some HBCUs, they drive an economic impact of their region anywhere between 30 to 50 million dollars. So lead it. So decisions that are made can, can hinder the economic impact, hinder different jobs and hinder different other things that help move that region forward. A lot of them, I really don't, not only they don't, they are not cognizant of it, but they don't want the responsibility. In the wake of the pandemic, we've seen high-profile billionaires gifts, gift large amounts to, of money to HBCUs. So I know that Netflix CEO Reed Hastings has gifted $120 million. Robert F. Smith launched the Student Freedom Initiative to help pay off HBCU student debts. You know, what do you think about these large public donations? Could this have a, a long-term impact for HBCUs? I think they are great, you know, that this movement is driving more attention to HBCUs that that will warrant great gifts like this from from Robert Smith, um, as well as Netflix CEO uh, Reed Hastings. I appreciate these large donations and pray that these gifts ignite a change and a plan for HBCU alumni to, to, to start and go above and beyond for their institutions. However, we need to hire real and strategic people in institutional development. If you're working in institutional development, again, if you can't raise the operation costs of your unit, you are incapable of doing your job. We should build relationships. And also when we receive gifts from major donors like Robert Smith and Netflix, be held accountable for those resources. Do not waste those resources. Have strategic way of utilizing those resources to gain more resources. You know, create strategic partnerships for sustainable giving. If HBCUs were able to change one thing right now in order to operate better, you know, what would that one thing be? HBCUs are very beautiful institutions, but we have to get out of our own way. You have to get out of our own way. HBCUs should understand exactly what type of leader they want. Using the, I really believe in using the, the frame theory. But most importantly, I feel that um, each person that comes to HBCU, they must believe and understand the term called pride investment. It's a term that I created about 10 years ago, but pride investment is something that is invested through act of devoting, using, or giving up time, talent, and emotional energy for a purpose of, of achieving something great. If you don't understand pride investment and you are not able to invest in your institution, then you should not be serving in the institution. Everything starts with the leader. And the leader has to be able to participate in a true participatory shared governance process to be able to uplift, but lead by example through ethical leadership, you know, fiscal responsibility, as well as participatory shared governance, and also being competent and hiring competent people. If you're not here to serve the students by John D. O'Brien, he used to say, if you're not here to serve the students, you are in the wrong place. Thank you very much, Johnny. That was a, a fascinating discussion. I really enjoyed that conversation. Thank you. Thank you very much. Next week, I'll be speaking to Karen Carberry, consultant family therapist at Ori, and Ted Ransor from Michigan State University. They're two of the three co-editors of the International Handbook of Black Community Mental Health, along with Patrick Vernon. And we'll be talking about inequalities in mental health care for black communities. <laughs>